This is episode three, Why Comics Matter. Welcome to Why Blank Matters, where we explore why small topics have big impacts. I'm your host, Amber Williams. And I'm your host, Kendra Clark. Hey, Amber. Yes? Where do most superheroes live? I don't know. Cape Town. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that we have our corny joke out of the way, um, today we're going to be talking about why comic books matter. And there's probably a lot of you out there who think that comic books are something just for kids, but hopefully what you'll learn by the end of the episode is that comic books actually have a lot more to offer. I personally know way more about comic books than most people would ever imagine, partially because I was married to a comic books artist at one point, um, so I was very much involved in that world. Now, how long were you were you close to the comic book world, would you say? Um, probably nearly 10 years. Okay. So I've definitely read a lot of comics, been to a lot of conventions, met a lot of artists, met a lot of writers. And Kendra also has like comic books above her toilet in her bathroom. Um, yeah, I actually have a poster hanging up that I got from New York Comic Con several years ago uh, by an artist named Maris. And she drew comic book heroes playing various sports. Uh, so it has like Hulk, I think maybe doing some yoga um, and some different things like that. It's a lot of fun. Oh, wait. So that's sports. I thought Spider-Man was holding up a mirror. Was that like a tennis racket? Yeah, I think that was a tennis racket. (laughs) (laughs) I very misunderstood that drawing, or at least the Spider-Man one. He's hanging upside down during that, but uh, it's not a mirror. Uh, But when we're talking about why comic books matter, um, I think one of the best quotes I have found regarding this is actually from Scott McCloud, who is a comic writer and artist. He actually wrote a book called Understanding Comics, and in that book he says... If people failed to understand comics, it was because they defined what comics could be too narrowly. And so that's where we're going to kind of go a little bit today is by widening your understanding of what comics are. So some of the characteristics of comics include image panels, speech balloons, captions, and onomatopoeias. And onomatopoeias are words that sound like what they are. Is that, am I phrasing that right? An example would be the word boom. Sounds like boom. I have to say, since we've started the research for this podcast, I have been chasing my dog around the apartment and like, shazam, kapow. And then we start play fighting (laughs) and she's all about it. And so am I. And so, yeah. So modern comics were, or what we think of as modern comics were developed in the 1800s. But the precursor to that was really political cartoons. Um, Amber, I know you said you found a lot in your research of kind of how that developed. Yes. So the father of political cartoons is kind of attributed to William Hogarth. And he, this is, this dates back to Da Vinci's time. So this is like 1700s era type stuff. Um, So political cartoons are made for the purpose of conveying editorial commentary on politics and politicians and current events. Such cartoons play a role in political discourse of a society that provides freedom of speech 
and of the press. It's usually opinion-oriented from the artist, and it requires viewers to have a background knowledge of what's going on in society to really understand the political cartoon. So usually the drawings are exaggerated, like they are today, like they're usually like caricatures or things of that nature, but the publication is was responsible for making sure that even though those things are exaggerated, they're still factually accurate. So William Hogarth was attributed with the start of political cartoons. He was alive from 1697 to 1764. Um, he was really responsible for targeting corruption in the 1700s in uh, British politics. But more prominently, he's known for his art to ban gin. In, in England. So in the late 1600s, like 1690 timeframe, gin was coming from the Netherlands and the Brits were just like losing their mind with spirits and gin. And so he was part of the the side to use putting out political propaganda to, to ban gin in England. That makes me automatically dislike them because <laughs> gin is my favorite. <laughs> and uh, so that's what he's mostly known for. When successful, political cartoons can fulfill an important role in society, can encourage the process of opinion formation and decision-making, as well as provide entertainment. So in the 1800s, you had the father of modern comics developed, and his name was Rodolphe Topher, and I may be completely mispronunciating that, but he was, a, but he was from Swiss, Switzerland? And he wrote short stories and drew caricatures to go along with them. And his initial stories, he just kind of created them for his friends and family to enjoy. He never intended for them to be published. But a friend of his finally convinced him. And his first published piece was published in 1833. And this is the first time where we really have multiple pictures that tell a story that have captions underneath them. Um, which is in line with what we think of as modern comics. Which is why he's largely attributed to the father of, of comics. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, one of his most notable publications, and I'm probably going to butcher this, is Histoire de Mr. Vouvois. <laughs> so I'm not, that's French, I think. But that was also one of the first publications to get picked up in the United States. And I think that was picked up in the 1840s. In this particular plot, the main character is has fallen in love with a young woman, and his initial attempts to court her fail. So he attempts twice to kill himself and fails because he can't get the love that he desires. So then he discovers that this potential lover has a rival suitor, and he challenges this person to a duel. He wins the duel, proposes to, or he somehow gets the attention of the love interest, and then they try to get married, and he's late for his own wedding, and so then the family's like, you can't marry our daughter, and then he tries to kill himself again, and he fails, and he awakes to, like, crow trying to wake him up, and then he comes back as, like, it's it's really interesting. (laughs) It's a, it's a like the start of what is wrong with most love interest stories, uh, where it's just like if you if you keep trying, she'll eventually fall in love with you. Which you know that's stalker behavior, and it's unhealthy. Also, it's also like glamorized in Hollywood. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, 
So I probably butchered the name and probably butchered the storyline too. So the next big thing in comics history is in the 1920s and 30s. This is really considered the golden age of comics. Um, there was really a boom. Comics started appearing in newspapers. And this is when we started having the development of the funny papers. Uh, some of the most popular characters from those funny papers that are still around today are Popeye, Tintin, and Tarzan. But during this period, you also had, um, during this time, you had one of the biggest dates in comics history. In June of 1938, you had the release of Action Comics number one, which is the comic you've probably all seen the picture of. It has Superman holding the car above his head. And this is really considered the beginning of the superhero genre. Hmm. Action Comics number one had several stories in it, but one of them was a Superman story. And it was considered the most popular in that run. Another interesting fact is Action Comics number one is considered the most valuable comic in the world. <laughs> wow. Do you know how much it sells for? Uh, so in 2014, there was an issue that was sold for over $3 million on eBay. Oh my God. I think I heard them talking about that when we were at the comic book store. I, I think I heard the owner talking with a customer about how it sold for like $3 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> But uh, during this time, you also had the release of Batman, uh, who was shown in Detective Comics number 27 in May of 1939. So during this era, you really had the creation of two of the biggest superhero characters in the history of comics. There was one person, I can't remember who was talking about it, but they said there's really no pop culture phenomenon that has happened that can compare to Superman and Batman. Interesting. And was it DC Comics then, or was it named something different? Uh, no, DC Comics was actually under the name of National Allied Publications back during that time. Um, and they later became DC, but they became DC to be short for Detective Comics. Oh, okay. Um, and during this time, you also had Marvel, or also during this time, Marvel was founded, uh, but they were called Wait. Atlas at the time. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, what? That's a little early for Marvel. Yeah, so it was Atlas, but they later transitioned to the name Marvel. Then you have the 1940s. And this is a really interesting time in comics because this is the time of World War II. And this is really when comics began reflecting current events and societal values. There was a large effort to use comics as propaganda during the war. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the material was sent overseas to troops. 30% of reading material sent to deployed soldiers were actually comic books. There's a whole book on reading material that was sent to the troops. I think it's called When Books Went to War. I read it a few years ago. It's really good. And it, and it talks about how books were s so profoundly beneficial to troops as far as morale and welfare. And so I totally see comic books being a part of that. About the 1940s is about the time that Stan Lee joined the army. So backtracking a little bit, Stan Lee was actually born Stanley Lieber, and he was born to Romanian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in New York, in Manhattan, and then the Bronx. And then when they moved to the Bronx, he and his brother shared a bedroom, and his parents slept on a fold-out couch. He was able to get the arts background in high school 
because of programs directly funded by President Franklin D. Roosevelt during the Great Depression. So it was after that that he went to work for his uncle at Comics Magazine, where he filled inkwells and did menial roles, and then he joined the Army. During his time in the Army, he served with about nine other artists, some of which were responsible for Dr. Seuss and the Adams Family. Did I ever tell you I got to meet Stan Lee? No. <laughs> How did you meet Stan Lee? So my ex uh, won a contest with MTV to actually create a comic with Stan Lee. Uh, the comic ended up never coming to fruition. The project kind of fell apart. But we actually got flown up to New York and he was on a panel with Stan Lee, and we rode in the elevator with him up, and he made fun of my ex's accent. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I got to meet Stan Lee, which is pretty cool. Uh, so Captain America was founded in 1941, um, and this is shortly after World War II began. But this was before the United States was involved in World War II. And when we talk about Captain America and how he was very intentionally political that's why they have him fighting nazis and punching hitler in the face in the comics um, it was also during this time that they use comics as a tool to promote war bonds so in the comics there would be advertisements to buy war bo bonds and support the troops you know it's funny that you mentioned the war bonds because when i was doing my research on stanley and i found that he was in the signal corps I remembered that Ronald Reagan did something very similar to this. So I thought there have been a chance that they served together, but I can't find anything online supporting that. So Ronald Reagan um, and Stanley had very similar roles. I think Stanley was more in, in Washington state and Ronald Reagan was uh, in California, but I can't find anything to support that they were together. But Ronald Reagan was kind of indirectly responsible for finding Marilyn Monroe because she was working on the line and they were filming her as part of a commercial to support that. So then after that, Ronald Reagan went on to the public relations team to build the war bonds. Okay. So the last big thing that happened in the 1940s was after World War II was when manga started to become established in Japan and it really expanded the page counts into the hundreds because manga comics were significantly larger than traditional u.s comics really so was that more like a graphic novel yes okay so then we move on to the 1950s which is really a sad time for comics that's when sales began to drop dramatically and part of that came from dr wortham who was a psychiatrist who crusaded against comics he claimed that comics were corrupt and they corrupted the morals of children. Because this became such a big topic, sales began to drop. Um, it also led to the creation of the Comic Code Authority, which censored comics and restricted what they could talk about, uh, basically taking out any kind of violence or gore or sexual content. And so after the sad 50s of comic sales, you move to the 60s, which there started to be a lot more significant growth. Marvel began to grow specifically while DC began to falter. But you also had the creation of underground comics that focused more on adult-themed topics and really pushed back against that comic code authority. This is when you had artists such as Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman who created more 
controversial books. It's funny that you mentioned that about the 50s because one of the things I was reading was that Captain America was really big in the 40s, kind of lulled, and then he came back in the 1960s. So it's, it's funny to make that, that correlation. And uh, the 1960s is also when you started having the first comic conventions. But at the time, it was more comic vendors than it was artists and writers like it is today. So you have Comic-Con. Is that the same or is that more for readers and fans? Are there different? Uh, so comic conventions. So Comic-Con is a comic convention. Mm-hmm. The most famous one is obviously uh, San Diego Comic-Con because they also have all the different movies that do their big releases at that particular convention. But comic conventions can be something as big as that or you can have something a lot smaller and local that really focuses more on the art or the writing. And then we move into the 1970s. And this is when you start seeing more serious topics in comics and when comics start to be more relevant to real life. So you see comics talking about drug abuse and racial prejudice. This is when Stan Lee challenges the Comic Code Authority. So Stan Lee was asked by the Department of Health and Education and Welfare to make a comic showing the dangers of drug use. And this particular comic was banned by the Code Authority, and I think he published it anyway. And that really was when the Code Authority started to lose some of its legitimacy because he was showing drug use in a negative light, and they were still like, oh, it's bad. You shouldn't be talking about it at all. And so that was when he was kind of like the face of, of challenging the Code Authority. And as a result, a lot of schools and parents and teachers, religious organizations, reached out to Stanley to thank him for how he told the story of drug addiction rather than just ignoring it. So according to LastingRecovery.com, uh, in the article Stanley and Drug Addiction, quote, under his tenure, Marvel Comics addressed many social issues under the guise of entertainment, prejudice, the Vietnam War, racism, student activism, and equality were all presented in a format that readers could understand, unquote. So this comic books kind of gave writers the opportunity to talk about drug use without preaching. So for instance, LastingRecovery.com shows that opium use in Iron Fist, methamphetamines in Captain America, Nomad was alcohol, uh, Starfire was alien drugs. What are alien drugs? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The X-Men were originally created in 1963, but in the 70s, writer Chris Claremont kind of took over the X-Men story, and Mm -hmm. it became a lot more reflective of what was going on in the civil rights movement. Obviously, the concept of mutants was used to explore how society treated minorities or others. And they were demonized by the public and seen as the terrifying other. Uh, Stan Lee actually said that the X-Men were a good metaphor of what was happening in the civil rights movement at that time. In a Huffington Post article, Diversity in Comic, What's Been Done and What Needs to Be Done by Zachary Dern, quote, Comic books have quite an interesting history with diversity. And the perspective you choose to look through will also give you different results, unquote. And so he kind of points out that diversity has a niche in comics, particularly with X-Men. 
and X-Men has been a catalyst for minorities in comics. I mean, X-Men has carried this out. Uh, so when an X-Men was initially created, most of the characters had these mutant abilities, but they weren't visible. So now when we watch the X-Men movies, like Beast is this big blue hairy guy, but initially he was just a person. He later turned into this big blue hairy guy. So most of their mutant powers were hidden, so they had to hide who they were, which was more reflective of the Jewish experience in relation to the Holocaust. Interesting. Um, but when Chris Claremont took over X-Men, we started having a lot more characters whose mutant side was more visible. So you had Nightcrawler, who's has this blue skin and almost like devil-like features. And those more visible aspects could be more attributed to race and different things like that. Um, and even later on, in I believe the 90s, you end up with characters who are gay. And so combining the mutants with that culture as well, things you have to hide, things that make you different, and how people treat those populations. Okay. The other way that comics were used for kind of activism during this time is through a comic called Abortion Eve. So this was created in 1973, just a few months after Roe versus Wade mm -hmm. was passed. Um, and they used these to educate women about abortion and what their different options were. So they were more knowledgeable about what abortions were because there had been so much misinformation while abortion was illegal. And after all of the activism with abortion, comic books were also used to address a lot of environmental concerns and even highlight certain things within the Environmental Protection Agency. So during this time, you also had EC Comics, whose founder's name is Max Gaines, and he was very frustrated with the Comic Code Authority. They had intended to publish a comic about a black astronaut and they were shut down since the character was black so in protest he stopped publishing pretty much most of the things they were working on so other than mad magazine which in recent news mad magazine is actually ending their publication after 67 years but they really helped to create more satirical content during that time and really kind of taken on the man, I guess you could say. Satire is really important when it comes to a democratic society because it's a way to broach topics that are too taboo to approach in any other way, and especially in times of crisis or mistrust or corruption and things of that nature. And so obviously the 70s were a big time where comics really reflected the societal issues that were going on. And then we have the 1980s. Uh, this is when Dark Horse Comics was created, which is most popularly known for Hellboy. You also had a lot more graphic novels. So this is around the time that you have writers such as Alan Moore, Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman. So you're talking about Watchmen, V for Vendetta, 300, Sin City. And then when Neil Gaiman, um, if you've seen... Good Omens, which wasn't a comic, but um, he wrote that. He did Sandman, which is probably his most popular comic. Um, and all the comics really became more gritty and focused a lot more on anti-heroes. Interesting. 
Okay. I could see that. And I, they became a lot darker. I mean, obviously, Dark Horse <laughs> comics. <laughs> yeah, so this is when you really see, uh, like, Batman becoming a darker figure than the bright blue, like, 60s version that you see in the TV show. Do So it was not just the, the color, the style of the comics, the, the subjects that they were fighting were darker. Is that right? Yeah, so a good example is The Killing Joke, which is a Batman story by Alan Moore, which is considered one of the biggest Batman stories, but is also one of the most controversial. Because in the comic, it is alluded to that the Joker actually rapes Batgirl. Wow. And leads to her being paralyzed. Is that the same episode where on the cover he's seen, like, cutting her mouth open, like, in the yes modern version of the Joker? Wasn't that banned at some point? I don't know offhand. I, I could, I mean, if you're ever going to ban something, I could see how this one could have been that took a lot of criticism because they spent was it decades building up Batgirl and how powerful she was and how competent she was as a superhero just to have it all kind of taken away in that particular comic yeah though I would argue that even post this when you have Batgirl in a wheelchair she's still like really badass because she's super smart and does all the computer stuff so she still has a lot to contribute even after this but Really, that story arc has been controversial because because people have been critical of the use of rape as a plot line, um, as a way to move a story forward. Right. In 1988, Archie Comics teamed up with the AIDS Action Council to include AIDS education messages that featured Archie, Veronica, and Jughead. It wasn't until the 1990s that the Holocaust really became part of the normal conversation and education system here in America. Part of that was the release of Schindler's List. You also had the creation of the Holocaust Museum. One of the biggest things that happened was the comic Mouse won the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. Mouse was written by Art Spiegelman and actually detailed the experiences of his father as a Polish Jew. And a Holocaust survivor. And in the comic, he depicted the Jews as mice, the Nazis as pigs, and the Polish people as pigs. So there's some speculation as to why he made the Poles pigs. And the reason for that is because they were primarily a sympathetic character and they're not kosher. So that's part of why they were pigs. Well, that would make sense. But there's other representation in there too like Americans were dogs gypsies were butterflies and Frenchmen were frogs uh Swedes were deer with horns and I don't know why that's important but it's important (laughs) but because Mouse won the Pulitzer Prize this also helped prove that comics could be artistically mature and literate work they weren't just things for children right but comics are used to explore a lot of other topics they can be used to both educate as well as form as a type of activism. So activism in one way is reflected as diversity in comics. And as I mentioned earlier, the quote from Zachary Dern, diversity has a niche in comics. Yeah, so the first black superhero in mainstream comics was Black Panther. And then Falcon was introduced in an episode of Captain America in 1969 and he's the first black character that doesn't have the word black in the in the name in some way. 
one of the more recent characters was Miles Morales, who was introduced when Peter Parker was killed. And so he's kind of like the new Spider-Man. And so there was a lot of debate when he was introduced, and a lot of people were like, not my Spider-Man, da-da-da-da-da, and that kind of jargon and nonsense. Um, a lot of like what we're seeing right now with the Little Mermaid and Ariel, because now Ariel is going to be depicted in the live-action film by Halle Bailey. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the publications got it wrong. They said Halle Berry, but Halle, Halle ba- Bailey. Yeah, yes. she's actually of the group Chloe X Halle, yes. which I love. So I didn't, I didn't put two and two together at first that that was the same person. But I'm really excited now. We've actually <laughs> seen her live. So if you know, now we will get to say that we've seen a real Disney princess. Oh my gosh, we can. <laughs> yeah. So we saw her during a um, a Beyonce concert. I'm really excited. But a lot of people are really upset that that she's going to be played by a woman of color and I just cannot wrap my head around it because people are like oh there weren't black mermaids well there weren't white mermaids either (laughs) I'm personally really excited about this little mermaid was my favorite I had an entire little mermaid bedroom suit like I had a little mermaid bed a little mermaid dresser a little mermaid table like all little mermaid I mean Halle Bailey is so pretty like she just naturally looks like a Disney princess like yeah (laughs) Um, and really, no offense to DC, but Marvel has really been at the forefront of including more diversity yes. in their comics. So you have the introduction of Kamala Khan, who was the new Miss Marvel, but is also a Muslim. You have, they made Thor a woman, which people, I think, I, actually, I think people were probably more upset about that than anything. Really? Yeah. I don't know, maybe Kamala Khan. But also... Marvel has had a lot of female comic creators as well. So you have Kelly Sue DeConnick, who was over Miss, who helped with Miss Marvel. So the other thing that came up in our research is the big role that comics actually play in education. Yes. More and more comics are being used as educational material. So much so that when we went to the comic book store, Mouse or Mouse? Mouse. Mouse was bought out because it's a fifth grade reading requirement. And part of that is because multiple studies show that students, one, students that read comics go on to read more and also read more varied literature. And that is regardless of their economic standing. So that breaches all of those divides. Yeah, divides. That's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One way that it helps with education is actually with improving literacy. One way that... It helps with education is in with improving literacy. And part of that is due to Clark and Pavio's dual coding theory. And what this theory proposes is that you have both words and images that provide information to the brain. And hmm. when you can use both of those together, it actually helps with cognitive operations and helps to increase the memory or increase memory and retention people remember things better because they have both things working together. So Alex Cox, deputy director of Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, was quoted in socialworkhelper.com, Comics Changed the World, the History of Activism in Comics by James Gavsey. He was quoted as saying, comic books will only become a stronger medium for activism in its various forms. Gavsey finishes the article, and I can't rephrase this any better. The question remains, however, 
Will the comic book medium be used to inspire activism responsibly or will it be used as a force with a shadowy agenda? If you guys have any experiences with comics or fun stories, be sure to let us know and we will include them in our next episode. So, And we encourage you to go out and check out your local comic book store, see what you find. Uh, you may be surprised at the variety of books that there are. You may find something that piques your interest, maybe more so than superheroes, especially as independent comics and creator-owned comics have become bigger and bigger. Uh, there's never been a better time to find your niche and what's available out there. So as always, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. And now you can give us a rating on iTunes. We are up on iTunes. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Y underscore underscore matters. And on Facebook at Y blank matters. So until next time, we'll see you next week. See ya.